Amen. Um, I might raise this up just a little bit. We're starting this new series on the Gospel of Mark. That's not how that works. <laughs> if anybody's listening to a recording of this later, I just pulled the top of the podium off. Um, uh, we're starting a new series on the Gospel of Mark um, this semester, and um, I was thinking about, as I was preparing uh, for this series, a, a friend of mine who um, I ran cross-country with in undergrad, um, which uh, my running career really went nowhere, but this friend of mine uh, had a, has had a prolific running career since then, and he actually, a few years ago, ran the Moab 240. If you're familiar with the Moab 240, it's insanity. It's uh, 238 miles, uh, and Moab, Utah uh, has more than 28,000 feet of elevation gain throughout the course of the race. And uh, my friend, um, John, as he was running this race, he wrote a long-form article for a running journal on his experience, and he, he talks about running this race, and he gets to this point where he is extremely exhausted, extremely depleted, and he sees one of the aid stations coming up. The aid stations are these places when you're doing ultra marathons where you can stop and refuel and get um, water and electrolytes and food and sometimes stop and rest. And he sees one of these aid stations coming up that he's longing for, and he gets to it, and he realizes he was hallucinating it. It wasn't a real aid station. His brain had gotten to the point where he was so depleted that he started hallucinating these things, and he kept coming to another aid station, and it was not real. And another aid station, and it was not real. And as he was running through the middle of the night through the snowy peaks of the Moab region, I don't know what it's called other than that, <laughs> um, <laughs> hoping to refuel hungry and tired and thirsty, he realized that he had to find a new way to know whether or not the aid station he was coming up on was real. And he realized something, that if there was a real aid station, he would not only see it, he would also hear it. There would be people, there would be commotion, there would be something more to hear and to know this is real. And so he started passing by these aid stations which I think feels incredibly vulnerable. I would be too afraid to do that. But he knew that they were hallucinations, and so every time he saw one and he didn't hear anything, he passed it by. And he didn't stop until he heard one. And he finally stopped at one he heard, and it was real. And there was food, and there was water. And as we come on the scene of the first century Jewish people, it's a bit like what my friend John had experienced. They're desperate. They're longing for the coming of the Messiah. They've been living under Roman rule, but the prophets have been silent for nearly 400 years. And in the meantime, their perception of who the true Messiah is has begun to be skewed. There were multiple people, I don't know if you knew this or not, but there were multiple people in the first century and just before the first century who claimed to be the Messiah. And many of them got a following for a little while. They were mostly political activists intent on pushing back Roman rule and increasing Jewish autonomy and freedom to practice the Jewish religion, but none of those messiahs had been real. And in their hunger and longing for the Messiah, some of the Jewish people had already been deceived 
And even after Jesus' public ministry begins, we will see over and over again that even his closest associates, the disciples who spent three years with him, day in and day out, still misunderstood Jesus' purpose and his aims and who the Messiah truly was. And over and over again, the Messiah is clarifying and reorienting them to his true purpose and to who he truly is. And you and I also have a tendency to misunderstand Jesus and his purpose. We tend to sneak in our own agendas and longings into our messianic expectations for Jesus. If you don't believe that, just look at the history of American politics for a second and you will find a whole heck of a lot of that. And we need Jesus to reshape our vision of who he is and what he came for. This is even in many ways, I think, part of why deconstruction, if many of you guys have probably heard the language of deconstruction, of uh, deconstructing faith, a part of why it is so popular, because people have been given a false messianic hope, or maybe you still are in the phase where you're struggling through and recognizing that you have false messianic hopes of who Jesus is, and you need the scriptures to clarify for you who he is. Like my friend John We need to know what the sound of the coming Messiah looks like. To know who Jesus actually claimed to be so that we can pass on the hallucinations, the false hopes, and place our hope in Jesus and the redemption that he brings. So it leads us to this question. What does the true coming Messiah sound like? As is true of uh, much of the Gospel of Mark, in fact, all the Gospel of Mark, the beginning of the Gospel of Mark is abrupt. It's not like the other Gospels that have this long lead in through the birth of Jesus. It is abrupt, and it starts with an abrupt inbreaking of good news. It says the beginning of the Gospel concerning Jesus the Christ. This gospel translated or means good news. It's, in the Roman understanding, a royal announcement. And in the Jewish understanding, the proclamation of a coming salvation and the announcement, the gospel, the good news comes in the form of a voice crying out in the wilderness, not in Jerusalem, not in the temple, but in the wilderness. Why the wilderness? The wilderness is the place where pretense and false hopes are no good. It is an exposing, vulnerable place. And if you've ever read through the Bible, you know that the wilderness is a huge theme of the Christian scriptures, both in the Old Testament and the New Testament. The English Bible mentions the wilderness more than 260 times. The wilderness is all over the Bible. And our very passage this morning mentions the wilderness four times. And as I wrestled through this text over this past week, I wrestled with how many things the wilderness has represented to God's people throughout the millennia. The wilderness is a place of provision, formation, testing, punishment, judgment, and curse, all of these things. And the more I read through the Old Testament depictions of wilderness, the more I began to see that the wilderness is a place of exposure and refining The chief experience of the wilderness for the people of God was the exodus. 
You may be familiar with the story of the Exodus, that God delivered his people out of slavery in Egypt under the harsh rule of Pharaoh. But the people of God were used to being in Egypt. And even if it wasn't great to not be slaves anymore, even if it was great to not be slaves anymore, when they moved out of Egypt and into the wilderness for 40 years, they didn't have the security blanket of being part of one of the most powerful kingdoms on the earth. And in the wilderness, they were being formed to trust God's provision. But because they did not want to rely on God's provision and live in trust in Him, they grumbled. And they ultimately rebelled against God so that eventually the wilderness became a place of punishment and judgment for them. Here's the deal. The Israelites had always been a people who struggled to trust God. They had always put their hopes in passing powers, but the wilderness, being in the wilderness, exposed that reality. If that keeps happening, I might switch out mics. The wilderness is a place where the gospel of Mark begins. It's the good news of Jesus is announced in the wilderness. The prophets understood the wilderness not just as a place, but as a state of being. A place where self-reliance is exposed as woefully insufficient. To put it in Colorado terms, entering the wilderness is not like going on a three-night backpacking trip where you have a pocket stove and instant mountain meals and gallons of water and a filter for more water. The wilderness is getting caught in the backcountry in July with no water and no map and dry creek beds. The wilderness is being lost on a January snowshoe trek in a blizzard with thin socks And some of you are in the wilderness. And some of you have been there and never want to go back. And some of you are on the precipice of the wilderness and you know it. And you are deeply afraid and you are fighting tooth and nail to keep the wilderness at bay. And you know many of the things that you are putting your hope and trust in are not trustworthy. And you're beginning to see them crumble around you and you're trying desperately to hold it together. But whether you are in rebellion or have been lulled into the passivity of living in the American dream, or even if you are earnestly seeking the Lord, but find that you have often misunderstood him, the wilderness is the only path to renewal. It is the place where pretense and false hopes are no good. It is exposing and vulnerable, but in it, God often works. And here is John the Baptist, like a prophet of old, a man of the wilderness, his very appearance of camel hair clothing and leather belt and a diet of locusts and honey shows John as a faithful prophet, a man of the wilderness, unconcerned what others think of him not beholden to his cultural moment, preaching not for his own glory, but pointing to another. And John's language is striking. He says, After me comes he who is mightier than I, 
the straps of whose sandals I am not worthy to stoop down and untie. What John is saying is this. The very lowliest servant was the only one who would untie the sandals of his master. And John says, the one who is coming is so great that I am not even worthy to be the lowliest servant of him. John says, I can call you to repentance through the baptism of water, but he will give you the very spirit of God. To hear the announcement of the gospel, the good news of Jesus in the wilderness is an implicit call for us to enter the wilderness. And what I mean by that is this, to let God root around in you, to find what's false, what's untrustworthy, what's facade, where your security is found. John is preaching repentance in the wilderness. And what are the people doing? They are coming and they are confessing their sins, receiving the baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of their sins. The wilderness may in fact be a terrifying place, but the announcement of good news is that even in the wilderness, no, especially in the wilderness, there is grace. The first part of the sermon, what we've just talked about is this movement and recognition of the necessity of the wilderness and that God moves his people into the wilderness in order to reorient us and reframe our relationship with him. But the second part of our sermon this morning in our passage is this, brothers and sisters, beloved, there is grace in the wilderness. The wilderness has often been the place where God clarifies and renews his relationship with his people. But here in Mark chapter 1, something strange happens. God clarifies and renews his relationship not with a people, but with a person. It tells us in verse 10 that when Jesus came up out of the water from being baptized, he saw the heavens being torn open, the clouds rending, and the Holy Spirit descending on him like a dove. And God the Father speaks, and he speaks over Jesus, and he says, You are my beloved son. With you I am well pleased. God clarifies his relationship with Jesus in the wilderness. Jesus is the son of God with whom God is well pleased. He has the unqualified approval of the God of the universe. And where does Jesus head on the heels of this dramatic scene? Does Jesus, having received the Spirit, the Holy Spirit, go to be with his people? No. Does he go back to civilization to proclaim the good news? Not yet. Mark says that immediately, which Mark loves that word, he uses it a lot, that immediately, showing the urgency of the inbreaking of the kingdom, immediately the Spirit drove Jesus to where? Into the wilderness. Deeper into the wilderness. And he was there for 40 days, not casually meditating and journaling, but in the center of cosmic warfare. 
being tempted by Satan in a state of profound vulnerability and exposure amidst the wild animals, which is this is common Old Testament language for the wilderness, but sustained and ministered to by the angels. Unlike Matthew and Luke's Gospels, Mark does not elucidate the temptations of Jesus that spanned the breadth of human experience. He doesn't record Jesus resisting temptation and declare Jesus' victory over temptation through reliance on the Father. He merely records that Jesus is driven further into the wilderness, facing direct warfare, exposure, and vulnerability before Satan. And the next thing that we know, Jesus has been, John has been arrested, and Jesus has come into Galilee proclaiming that the time is fulfilled that the kingdom of God is at hand and calling people to turn and believe the good news. So what does this mean for us? Mark began with a proclamation of good news to awaiting wilderness people. But how is what is happening to Jesus good news for us? The start of the good news is that Jesus has come from the Nazareth of Galilee, This might seem like a strange thing. Everyone else who has come into the scene where John is preaching has come out of Judea and Jerusalem, the center of Jewish culture and religious life. But Jesus has come from Nazareth. Nazareth, about which it would later be said in the Gospel of Mark, can anything good come from Nazareth? And this is actually good news for us. Why? Because it foreshadows for us that Jesus has come for the sick, not the put-together, the self-concerned, confirmed, the self-righteous, the religious put-togethers. If you know just a little bit about your spiritual weakness and need, a Messiah from Nazareth is good news. He is acquainted with the sick and the outcast. He has come for us. But what else does this mean for us? Jesus does a strange thing in being baptized. There's a lot of weird stuff going on here. He receives John's baptism of repentance. But if Jesus is the holy, righteous Son of God without spot or blemish, without sin, why does he need to be baptized? The depiction of washing and repentance and forgiveness Why does Jesus need the baptism of repentance that John offers? The answer, he doesn't. He doesn't need to be baptized with the baptism of repentance. But you know what? We need him to be. Because beloved in Jesus' baptism, Jesus identifies with the sins of his people. Jesus comes with a posture of repentance, not because of his own failures, but because he represents us. 2 Corinthians 5.21 says that for our sake, God made him, that is Jesus, to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Jesus identifies with the sins of his people. Not only that, Jesus receives the unqualified affirmation of the Father. 
Jesus opens the cosmic doorway into God's kingdom where we can be counted as sinless ones who because of Jesus have the unqualified affirmation of the Father that the Lord could look at you and know all of your stuff and say, you are my beloved son or daughter with whom I am well pleased. Jesus has come for the sick. He identifies with the sins of his people. He has the unqualified affirmation of the Father, but there is still more good news. Jesus enters into the wilderness of utmost temptation and displays perfect reliance on the Father, submission to the purpose of God. And commentators on Mark observe that Mark does not tie Jesus' temptation up into a quick bow. The temptations of Jesus do not come to a conclusion at the end of this passage because the sparring with the forces of evil will go on in the gospel of Mark until Jesus conquers them in his own death and resurrection. It is intentional that Mark does not tie up the temptations of Jesus because they don't stop. They continue for the rest of his life and ministry on this earth. And why is this good news for us? Because in the hubbub of beckoning security and pleasure and power, and $700,000 three-bedroom, two-bath houses, you and I cave. We acquiesce. We live like everyone else for ourselves, for our hopes, for our dreams, to commend people we like and to downgrade, downgrade those we don't. And in the wilderness in weakness and hunger and poverty and vulnerability and loneliness, if we ever let ourselves even enter into it, we look for the quickest way out. But beloved, Jesus does not. He doesn't look for the quickest way out. He doesn't find a way out. He remains hungry. He stays lonely in the wilderness. He enters willingly into the suffering, knowing its cost. And all of this, without a hint of self-reliance, receiving the ministry of angels, feeding, as Matthew would record for us, on the Word of God. For those of us who are easily overcome, who fall into sin who are overcome by adversity and the anxiety of our daily lives. It is good news that the long-awaited Messiah of God, that the coming Christ, goes into the furthest reaches of the wilderness, the desert of deserts, tempted by Satan in the most vulnerable state, yet without sin. We need him to represent us. These are strange beginnings to the long-awaited Messiah and the gospel of Mark. It's an odd and urgent announcement to a wilderness people. As we continue our journey through the gospel of Mark, we will see the gospel of Mark unveiling a crisis of our own understanding of ourselves and a crisis of understanding God and his strange redemption. This book, this gospel, will call us into a 
to be a different kind of people as we learn what it means to follow Jesus. As I wrestled with what to title this sermon series, which doesn't really matter that much, the thing that I landed on was just this, follow me. Because if you read the Gospel of Mark, that's it, man. I don't know if uh, some of you guys might have seen the newsletter um, that um, Chelsea sent out for us this week. And I put on there, um, well, she put on there. I sent it to her. <laughs> uh, this image of um, this painting by Francisco de, I'm going to totally mess his name up, Cerberan, is that it? Somebody out there who's an art guy. Yeah, anyways. Um, and the painting is titled Agnus Dei. It's one of a few that he did, and it's of a lamb that is tied for the slaughter. And I almost guarantee you that if the, if the disciples, if the followers of Jesus, upon this announcement, were to imagine how the church would later depict Jesus, the coming Messiah, it would not have been as a tithe lamb. But looking back, we know. We know the gospel. We know the strange story and the good news. And the strangeness of this story is that the slain lamb says to us, follow me. And beloved, if we will follow Jesus to those places, we will be reshaped. We will be transformed because discipleship is not a methodology. It's following Jesus. It's following Jesus where he leads. And in the opening chapter of the Gospel of Mark, we see the beginning of the proclamation of good news concerning Jesus to awaiting people, to religious failures and outsiders, to the sick, to those marked by sin and addiction, to those who fall daily to temptation and are overwhelmed by adversity. And beautifully, in the opening of the Gospel of Mark, we see a doorway to God's kingdom being cracked open by a Messiah who comes for the sick, who identifies himself with our sin, who has the unqualified affirmation of God, who suffers the temptation in the wilderness and vulnerability and reliance and is not overcome. So what are we to do? Beloved, I want to invite you this morning and as we enter into the gospel of Mark over the coming months to come into the wilderness. It's unavoidable. Some of you may be deeply afraid, but the encouragement is this. There's grace in the wilderness. God meets his people there. I want to encourage you to look in wonder and hope at the proclaimed Christ. And if you're here this morning and you're brand new to Christianity or you're wrestling with Christianity, maybe you've been around Christianity for a little while and you're struggling through a lot of cynicism, what I want to ask of you, I'd love for you to keep coming back over the coming weeks, is just to have a posture of curiosity. A posture of curiosity about your own need and a posture of curiosity about who this Jesus is. And if you've been around the church for a long time and you're pretty sure you know exactly who Jesus is, I want to invite you to that same curiosity so that you and I, like my friends on the Moab 240, 
we know which aid stations to stop at. We know the places to feed, to be refreshed, to be replenished, to find the grace that can only come through this Messiah. Would you pray with me and then we'll enter into some Q&A. Oh, Father, I, <laughs> I find myself uh, overwhelmed by the introduction to this gospel. There's a lot here. And Lord, you know us. You know what the wilderness exposes in us. And we ask, Lord, that you would be gracious with us. That as you have done in the first century and as you continue to do, that you would meet us with the grace of Jesus. That the Messiah that comes would be one that we would look to in faith and find ourselves transformed by who you are. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. I'm going to look at a couple of questions um, that you guys sent in. Um, all right, first one here. Oh, that's not right. Okay, here we go. What is your advice to someone feeling isolated here, uh, yet going through intense grief? The wilderness is difficult without human companions, but the greatest companion uh, is mine, my hope and stay, yet feeling very alone. Man, that's a great question. Um, <laughs> one of the things that I really want us to see as we consider this picture of the wilderness that's given to us throughout the scriptures and as we see Jesus driven even further into the wilderness uh, is the juxtaposition on how we in our cultural understanding of sort of like going, like our wilderness experience, right? We have this idea of sort of like going and finding ourselves. And the thing about the sort of cultural conception of having this like wilderness experience is it's really essentially about figuring out how to be self-reliant, that is not the picture given to us in the Gospels. The whole picture of Jesus entering into the wilderness is that he is actually learning to deepen his reliance on the Father. I think that what this also means for us who are the people of God, God is gracious. Jesus is the only one who goes completely alone in the complete and utter abandonment of the wilderness. By His grace, we don't have to go utterly alone into the abandonment of the wilderness. God's given us His people, and I think that is significant. Um, there's so many things I could say about this kind of tension of loneliness, and one is that, like, one, yes, we have to learn reliance on God, and that's part of the hope of moving into the wilderness. But two, God's given us a people to be with in the wilderness, and the third thing that I would say is, I think culturally we, we have, I've wrestled with this a lot over the years, we've come to this point where we think loneliness is this thing that I have to figure out how to fix. I got to heal it. I got to make it go away. And it might seem like strange good news, but I actually think it's good news that you don't have to. All of us on some level are going to feel the ache of loneliness until Jesus returns. 
because we are not in the perfect relationship, fully consummated the way that we are intended to be until He does come back to make all things new. We're a people who have learned because everything around us tells us that the idea is to, yes, we feel our emotions, but to feel them in order to get rid of them. (laughs) And the Christian story says, actually, we're supposed to cultivate those because we're longing for something more. If you feel lonely right now, you're not crazy. We're awaiting people. We're in the wilderness and we're longing for the King to return. I know that may be unsatisfying, and I also just want to just, you know, say it's helpful to get whatever help that we can get. (laughs) Going to counseling, working through things, I myself have had deep seasons of anxiety and depression and have found counseling and medications really helpful in those seasons. So don't ignore those things. But I do want to say, frame those things in knowing that we are seeking to grow our reliance on the Lord, and we do so amidst a people. We are not a people of self-reliance, and we don't have to be, and also we're not crazy for feeling lonely. I'll take one more question. Um, There's multiple questions in here. Um, Okay. What if we have... Whoops. All right. How can we reconcile John's experience of Jesus' baptism, God's proclamation that Jesus is God's Son and God is well-pleased with Him, and the Spirit descending like a dove, with John's later questioning whether Jesus is in fact the Messiah? Man, what a great question. I love this. Um, for those of you who don't know, know later, uh, so John is very clearly this uh, long-awaited um, prophet from Isaiah. I mean, it's quoting Isaiah the one who is sent to prepare the way of the Lord. John's mother was told, this is going to be the one who prepares the way for the Messiah. John knew that, and he is living his life as the minister. He tells us in the Gospel of John that while we don't know if anyone else saw the rending of heaven and the dove descending, the Gospel of John actually records that John the Baptist did see it. We don't know if anybody else did, but we know Jesus saw it, and we know John the Baptist saw it. So John had seen all these incredible things, and yet when John is imprisoned later on, it tells us that John sent messengers to Jesus, and this is what John sent his messengers to ask Jesus. Are you the one we've been waiting for, or should we be waiting for someone else? (laughs) Jesus' reply is actually some of the opening verses that we read, similar quoting Old Testament passage, and Jesus says, um, I'm going to be paraphrasing, but... The blind see, the lame walk, and the poor have the gospel preached to them. In other words, Jesus is saying, I am the one. The things that the Old Testament predicted the Messiah would do, I am doing those things. Um, But what I want to say is, how do we reconcile John's sending that question later on to what John saw in this passage? Is that John is like us, that we are people of feeble faith. And it is beautiful that John, in response to John's question, Jesus doesn't chide him. This is one of the reasons why we do Q&A every week. Jesus sends back the message and says, do you see that the blind see and the lame walk and the poor of the gospel preach to them? He gives an affirmation and encouragement to John, a 
a simple evidence of the reality that Jesus is who he says that he is. And man, that is good news for us. Um, there's some other great questions here. If I didn't get to your question, I'm sorry. I would love to talk more about these things. Uh, but man, what great questions. And keep, let's keep wrestling through this stuff. Um, as we move to the table, I'm just going to keep doing it. Every time I preach and go straight into communion, I do this weird thing where I just take the giant step and I'm just going to do it. It's just more efficient. Um, <laughs> this bread and this wine that we come to um, is exactly what we need. <laughs> this is the aid station because you and I need to be able to taste and see that the Lord is good, that he's with us, that he's come for us the sick and the sore, the weak and the wounded. I love how the song says, if you tarry till you're better, you will never come at all. Beloved, this is not the table for those who have it together. This is the table for people who are desperate and who are in need of Jesus' mercy and grace. If you know your need this morning, come and eat. Come and drink. Come and feed on Jesus. And the night that Jesus was betrayed, he took bread and he broke it and he gave it to his disciples and he says, this is my body broken for you. In a like manner, Jesus took wine and after giving thanks, he passed it around to his disciples and he said, this is the blood of the covenant shed for many for the forgiveness of sins. And he said, I tell you, I will not drink of this cup again until I drink of it new with you in my Father's kingdom. Beloved, if you know your need and you long for Jesus, come taste and see that he is good. Let me pray for these elements. Father, we come... As